Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. Our goal here is to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. Sports Info Solutions develops analytics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and try to have some cool, interesting fun. On today's show, we'll be joined by Tigers broadcaster and special assistant and baseball legend, Kirk Gibson. We're not talking Tigers. We're talking about the idea of understanding the game from a player's perspective and getting some viewpoints on how the human side and the analytics mesh. Dan Brooks, who runs the Sabre Seminar event in Boston, a wonderful baseball analytics conference, he'll tell us what's in store this year. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will talk baseball research, pick a player to watch as well. We'll answer some listener questions and talk ridiculous numbers. Let's start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... Batter up! The Indians trailed the division-leading Twins by as much as 11 and a half games in early June, but they've closed the gap considerably in the last six weeks. There are many reasons for that. A run of games against the Tigers, Royals, Orioles, and Reds helped, but let's give credit where it's due to one thing you might overlook, their defense. The Indians have been one of the top teams in defensive runs saved over the last month. You might think that Francisco Lindor was the main reason for that. It's not. The Indians have benefited most from their outfield defense. Right fielder Tyler Naquin has been very good in his time there. This is a much different Naquin from the one who struggled in center field early in his career. He helped preserve a one-run win in Detroit with a phenomenal catch and double play in the ninth inning during this hot streak. Similarly, Jake Bowers has been all right in left field, giving the team a solid, if not spectacular-looking, outfield date. The other thing that the Indians have is Constance. Their shift defense is and has been excellent for the last four seasons. This season, the Indians ranked number one in ground ball and bunt out rate when using a shifted D. The Indians are very careful about picking their spots for shifting. They actually shift among the least of any team. But it works, and it works well. The other constant is catcher Roberto Perez, who has been excellent throughout his career. Perez offers a consistent combination of pitch framing and pitch blocking. His arm has a positive effect on deterring base stealers. He's the best defensive catcher in the American League. And he's hit a little bit, too. He's provided the value the Indians hoped they would get when he became their full-time catcher this season. There should be more good news for the Indians soon with the hopeful returns of Corey Kluber and perhaps Carlos Carrasco. Right now, they're rocking and rolling, and they might just catch the Twins for the division lead. Kirk Gibson is a baseball legend, a former star for the Detroit Tigers, an MVP for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and a World Series hero for both teams. He's currently a broadcaster for the Tigers. Not necessarily going to talk Tigers here. What we wanted to do was we wanted to talk to someone who played, coached, managed, broadcast, who was a little old school, but a thinker too. Uh, Kirk very much fits that uh, description. First thing I would ask you as a means of trying to give us a better uh, understanding of things, the season's a massive grind. What's the biggest challenge that a player faces mentally in trying to get through 162 games? And like, I feel like that's a tough thing to measure with analytics, but I'm curious if you can tell us what that's like. Well, hopefully we can find a way to measure it analytically. It is very tough. Um, we're getting into late July here now and going into early August. 
this is really when it starts. You know, the mental aspect of the game is always tough. When you fail seven out of ten times and you're still good, our minds aren't set up to accept that. But you can do that when you're fresher, when you're not beat up, when you haven't played a bunch of games, when you haven't been traveling all across the country. These are the times when you get tired. You know, I wrote a book um, called Bottom of the Night way back in the in late 90s. And in the, in the forward, it talks about defeating the beast. The beast being the element that is in, I would say, all of our, all of our lives that wants us to abandon our goals, our dreams. So, you know, for instance, you say that you wanted to steal 40 bases and, you know, you're at 15 right now and it looks like you're not going to do it. Instead of trying to fight through the sore legs or whatever, you just say, oh, well, you know, I had a sprained ankle during the season. You just can find ways to basically opt out and the beast gets you and you abandon your goals. And that's what's happening to a lot of teams right now the teams with character and the teams with will and determination, they're going to stay in. You know, I think when the season starts, everybody's got their hat in the ring and one by one, they start to take their hats out. And that's uh, really what they're up against right now. So I think you just have to really learn how to take care of yourself. You have to be dedicated because if you get too tired mentally, you won't fight through it. You won't fight to beat the beast to the end like you originally started at the beginning of the year. What's the metric that we could come up with that would measure a player or a team's capability of defeating the beast? Well, you, as you know, we've had conversations. Uh, there's a lot of metrics out there that players are measured by. I guess war being one of the main ones. I think that um, when you add it all up, I've always said to you, Mark, that there's another column for me, and it's intangibles. It's um, guys who do the little things. It's because if you're playing somebody better than you, how are you going to beat this team? How are you going to beat this person? And I believe it's winning baseball. You do winning baseball things. Um, you're an outfielder. You back up the base every time. Not not nine out of ten times. Every time. You hit a pop-up that's probably an out. It's a sunny day out. You, you bust it. So if he does drop it, which may only happen once a year, you are on second. You, know, you just do these. You do these little things, and, you know, this is something that, as you know, I'm trying to define and come up with that I think it's a multiplying factor. If a guy grades out as a four and has really not not, not many of the qualify, those qualities I'm talking about, he's a four. If there's a guy that's a three and he has those qualities, I think that some type of way I'd like to come up with a multiplier that would make him my choice to play winning baseball, to add more to his team, to be there with that throw, you know, nicks off the runner and, and then the runner goes home and you, you pick him up. You know, who's going to hit the cutoff, man. Who's, who's only going to pick up the ball one time when it hits the wall, who's going to take their time, get a good four seam grip, to make that throw to the glove side of the cutoff, man. You know, who, what pitcher is going to cover the base every single time? Because, you know what, Detroit Tigers lost the World Series because they made five errors by pitching. And, you know, it's something that we take for granted. And they were good pitchers, and they're not trying to. They're good kids. But some people, some players, in my opinion, have the ability 
to not let their guard down. And, and I can tell you that my background from playing football in college and from um, being tutored by Jim Leland and Sparky Anderson, that was what was acceptable. The other was not. We policed that and we stuck it through. And a couple times we got to say we were world champions. Slight transition. I want to talk about hitters, and, and certainly you've worked with uh, plenty of them in your time. And it's a very popular thing now to talk about the launch angle revolution and changing your swing and making adjustments. Last uh, podcast episode, we were talking about Mookie Betts and the changes that he made. But what's it actually like when you tell someone to do this, being on the receiving end of that, and trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to be able to do this for 162 games and then year after year after year being able to maintain that? Well, first of all, everything doesn't work for everybody. There's not one thing I don't believe that you can say to a hitter that he's going to say, oh, and the light's going to go on and then it's going to work and then you're going to go to the next hitter and the same thing's going to happen. We're all different individuals. We all have different abilities. We all have different bodies. We all have different philosophies, swing paths. Um, you got to find what works for you. And, um, you know, there are some specific things that, you know, obviously you don't see guys starting with their bat down at their knee. Um, conversely, there's only really one Julio Franco that I ever can remember <laughs> the way he set up really high and the way, the way he did it too. But, you know, there is a position that I call from there, you go to the ready position. The ready position being a spot where you're in good position to get to as many balls as you can get to. You know, the other thing about hitting is I was taught by uh, Richie Hebner said a very impactful thing to me. And Ben Hines, when I went over to the Dodgers, he taught me to use the whole field. You can't hit every ball. You know, we always try, if you look at guys, you're trying to put every ball in play hitting it hard because there's a lot of talk about, about hard hit balls. And if you look at the charts and the analytics of what gives the pitcher the advantage in general, I, I, you know, we, we won't talk specifics here, but, you know, if you're a right-hand pitcher and you're facing a right-handed batter and you throw 90 miles an hour in your height and your velocity and, and uh, your vertical movement and your horizontal movement is such, you know, you've got a pretty big area that's in favor of the hitter. If you go down to a guy that throws 97 miles an hour and he has less horizontal movement and greater vertical movement, still you have a big area that favors the pitcher. There's just a little area down and in which favors the hitter. Now, how many hitters are going to sit there and think about, I'm just going to swing at a pitch down and in, down and in, when the reality of it is if you had that ability you're going to give yourself a better opportunity to launch the ball. See, I don't think launch angle. I think launch the ball. I think of a ball that comes off as a line drive, but then takes off like a wing of an airplane. Because if you think of a four seam, you know, they always taught us to throw the ball with four seams. Okay. Because you get the truest carry. The ball goes straight. You get better carry and you get a better bounce. Well, it makes sense that, you could hit a ball off the bat that way, you're going to get more carry as well. I never thought about the angle. I always thought about hitting a line drive. Number one was line drive that took off with backspin. Number two was line drive with side spin. Number three would be 
ground ball, which we know with the shifting today, that's basically now. And if you get above a certain height on a fly ball, it's not going to go out of the ballpark. So to me, when I hear launch angle, the guys are trying to hit the ball up in the air. Um, that wouldn't work for me. That's kind of where I started. My terminology is what I just recited to you. That was my goal. When you, you know these guys start and they hit off the tee and they hit flips in the batting cage every day. You know, I see guys working on their mechanics, and I the only thing I would offer them is to say, just think about hitting this ball on the line right here. And I put a little exit tape on the side of the side of the net, or you know, the, where the the uh, flipper flips from in the cage, puts one there. And you know what? When they just think about the outcome, it works good if you have a good ready position. So is the ideal analytic or metric for something like that, something that measures um, ideal swing replication, like every pitch has an ideal swing based on what you just talked about and how close the batter can get to that swing every single time? Well, I'll tell you what, you've heard of Rap Soto, right? Mm-hmm. That's a measuring device. The pitchers use it. The hitters use it to put vests on. They have sensors in their, yep. in their bat. And I think what they really are finding out is it's the, the order of which your swing happens. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to give it in a real simple sense that everybody can, that's listening can maybe get an idea. You know, you figure... You get to your ready position. Your hands are ready to go to the ball. You take, I, I kind of believe in somewhat of a two-part swing. Bottom half goes. You have a little separation from the top half. Now, what, what happens from there? Does the bat, where does the bat go? What, what, where do you fire from next? Is it from the back side? Is it from the front side? They're finding that there's certain sequences of movements from the body and the coordination of the body is really the important thing to get you into a position to drive the ball. And uh, obviously that's what everybody's trying to do is drive the ball. Uh, again, we like to hit home runs, but you're going to have a more consistent swing. When we try and lift too much and we overswing, that front shoulder tends to come out. And uh, also we, see, we, we tend to dip that back, that back side and the results are not good. That's just a, a pop-up or a foul ball, and that's not the that's not our goal. There's certainly a lot of information regarding uh, swing uh, success and things of that sort. There's a lot of information in general with scouting reports, and I was thinking about uh, the scouting report that you got in the 1988 World Series uh, about Dennis Eckersley and the backdoor slider, and I'm thinking. How many things can a player afford to have being in his head when he's up at the plate? And how much should someone that, that wants to be in the position of giving the player that information, how much should they, uh, should they provide for someone? Uh, again, I think it changes from player to player. Um, what was it for you? you, know, you have, uh, well, first of <laughs> all, you know, I, I'll give you an example. Um, this isn't even about hitting, but... Um, you know, Sparky Anderson, when we were young outfielders, he would not let us throw the ball home. If there was a guy on second, he would tell us we had to throw the ball to second base. And we say, well, what if it's a one hopper? He said, throw it to second. What, what about like a bullet? And there's a slow catcher, throw it to second. You can run it to second if you'd like. And, you know, it never made sense to us, but that was his way 
of pushing us to make sure we were good throwers and that we hit cutoff man, because he always believed in cutting the ball and redirecting it and taking the sure out. And then the other thing, now that analytics are in play, do you know what the percentage of runners that get thrown out from second base are from the outfield? I know you know, but I'm asking your viewers. It's like 4 to 5% historically. Now, Kirk Gibson would be 2% and Gerardo Parro would be 20%. But in general, that, that was, that was, that was his, his position. And hitting is the same way. It's like we, back then we really didn't have the data that they have now or the analyzing tools about the, the, uh, the path of your swing. What I knew was I was in Tiger Stadium and it was 315 feet to the upper deck and I wanted to hit it from 370 mark in the right center field to the line so it was either fair or foul was good too because that meant you were trying to hit the ball into the upper deck. Now when I went to the Dodgers I had Ben Hines and he convinced me that that swing wouldn't work here and I'd be a better player and that is really how we did it. Now, I think of a guy like Paul Goldschmidt. He could handle the numbers. It didn't, didn't uh, scare him at all. But he would go in and he would look at the tendencies of pitchers, et cetera. And you got to trust it if you do that. you know, you got a game plan. You have to stay with it. But he would go in and he would look at film of that pitcher with men in scoring position. That's what he would do. He would go in and he would look at it. And that would give him his confidence. Now, as for our team meetings, when we presented all the data, we would whittle it down from, you know, 100 pages of the data that we got to one page to important things of data that, that would help them. But what we did, instead of really give them the numbers, is we tried to give them the video that showed the numbers. So, so is that to say, you know, early in our, in our careers, we used to see like Matt Boyd's pitching for the Tigers tonight. We'd watch Boyd striking everybody out and how nasty he was, right? When I got to become manager and stuff, I said, that doesn't make sense. We want to see him getting raked. So we would try and show what pitches in certain counts that he would go to and, and you would give you the best opportunity. Now there's one thing that any amount of data numbers, anything that you can see that's the important part. And that is if you get the pitch, you can't miss it. And that's, I guess, when you get into the metric of chasing swing and miss percentage, that's when they become important. Two last things for you. Uh, what has it been like to try and learn all this stuff uh, in the roles that you're in now? Love it. You know what? There's so many things out there that I learned that you can validate and, uh, you know, I'm, an assistant to Al Avila, the general manager of the Tigers. I'm going around and look at all the minor league kids. It's a great tool to evaluate. Obviously, if my eyes and the analytics line up, that gives us more confidence in certain things. But again, we're all trying to find a way to keep the game great. It's been great to me. Sparky taught us that we must get back. And it's, it's a movement. You can't fight it. Enjoy it. My dad passed away oh, around 
the year 2000, and he was a student to the day he died, and I suspect I'll be the same. Kirk Gibson, last question for you, and probably the most important thing here. I want you to tell us about the Kirk Gibson Foundation. Please tell us what it does. Well, many of you may know, some of you may not know, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Um, it's a neurological disorder, and um, you probably know somebody who's affected by Parkinson's. If you don't, you will know. In my foundation, after I was diagnosed, many people remain private. Uh, it's um, not the thing to do, in my opinion. You know, I want to be there for you. I want you to feel comfortable to open up. We raise money for clinical trials. We raise money to help people the nurse navigator program, therapies. You know, it's a kick in the ass when you get a diagnosis like that. And it's important that you're educated and that you know that you have somebody that you can go to somebody that you can, that'll always be there for you. And, um, you know, when that happened to me, my friends, my family and the baseball community, they've been outstanding. It's not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be. You can live a good life as I do, try to promote others to do if you choose to. And um, I'm there to help you make the right choice. KirkGibsonFoundation.org or ebsp.org. There's a lot of information there if you care to, to, to look at it. Kirk Gibson, uh, friend of Sports Info Solutions, friend of analytics, uh, and uh, from the Kirk Gibson Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day. And we're joined by Dan Brooks, who runs Sabermetric Scouting and the Science of Baseball, otherwise known as Saber Seminar, which will take place August 10th and 11th in Boston, Massachusetts, a Woodstock-like gathering of uh, baseball analytic fans. Uh, it's been running for a good number of years now. It has raised a considerable amount of money for the Angioma Alliance. Uh, tell us about uh, your involvement in this and tell us about your history of it. Yeah, so uh, Hi. Um, so, um, my involvement in Sabre Seminar started actually Sabre Seminar 1. Um, uh, originally, I was just going to be a speaker at this thing, and then Chuck Korb, who I think um, is the uh, official primary organizer of Sabre Seminar, um, although I now share that title uh, with him, um, uh, asked for some help running the event. And um, it goes back nine years now. Um, and at the time, we were a tiny, uh, it was around 100 people. We barely filled a lecture room at Harvard, which is where the first one was. Um, and now it has grown pretty considerably. We're likely to push 300 people this year. And uh, we have, I think, 40 or 50 speakers, I think 50-something speakers this year. Um, and it's just grown into both a massive and really fun event. Sports Info Solutions is involved, will be presenting as well this year and has presented in years past. I've spoken uh, on groups uh, in years past talking about uh, the use of analytics in the media. Uh, going back through the history of the conference, what have been some of the more memorable presentations? Um, you know, I mean, I think there are standout talks every year. I think historically there's been uh, a couple of presentations that at least from my perspective have sort of shaped um, not only the flow of the conference, um, but also sort of the game of baseball in a lot of ways. So going back, I can't remember how many years now, maybe seven, eight years, um, Brian Bannister came and um, uh, was giving what I think was 
um, one of the first presentations he had given post playing career, you know, about how he thought about analytics, how he used them when he was pitching, you know, he talked about how he would go back into the dugout and look or, or behind, you know, in the clubhouse and like during games, look at his pitch FX data to see like, Oh, how are my pitches moving today? And, uh, you know, um, I think far, sort of following that there's been just a, uh, both for his own career, but also, you know, I think the sport as a whole has tremendously recognized the value of that sort of player turned analyst or person who can serve as that go between, between the coaching staff and players or between player development staff and players who can sort of actualize the kinds of things that are being learned in a mathematical model into, um, you know, real world, uh, like player centric applications. You know, I mean, I think there have been others that have been uh, fantastic. Tyler Taminia, uh, Ben Charrington's wife, um, spoke, gosh, maybe five years ago now. And uh, also in a lot of ways really um, has helped revolutionize the conference. She's been instrumental in our scholarship um, activities that we've started. We started two years ago um, that aim to bring in, you know, women and minority uh, students who are aspiring to be in baseball front offices. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that that's been a tremendous boon for the conference. Uh, two things that are really awesome uh, about the conference, and I've been to, I think I've been to four of them. Uh, one is the accessibility of people like Brian uh, Bannister and a few others uh, that you have brought in that have worked for teams, and they certainly make themselves available in the hallways, and they talk to people, and they're uh, actively engaged uh, with many of the people that come. And the other is that I think more so than just about anything that I've been with, uh, you give students a, a really good opportunity to uh, talk. Uh, we actually have someone from uh, that works here that is doing something related to his time as a student uh, at his uh, college in Iowa, where he uh, helped a Division three school uh, with its use of Rapsodo. Can you tell us about uh, how you get student presentations involved? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, so this this extends actually back to, I think the second or third Sabre seminar was the first time we really thought, you know, let's get students involved. Um, so first, it's it's been extremely successful. I mean, several of those students who were in that inaugural class are now at very high levels of MLB organizations. Um, you know, they gave their first and only talk at Sabre seminar, and now they're assistant GMs or directors of, of uh, analytics. And it, it's a really remarkable uh, thing to be able to give those people that platform. So I think, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been great for us to be able to give people that ability, you know, from a, uh, from, from a sort of historical perspective, the conference that I sort of grew up on as a young scientist was the conference on comparative cognition, which has nothing to do with <laughs> sabermetrics, but instead deals with animal learning and, uh, comparative psychology. One of the things, if you look, you can go look at a, a CO3, which is the uh, moniker for Conference on Comparative Cognition. You could go look at a conference booklet and you would find this huge number of five or 10 minute student presentations. You know, students don't get enough time to speak publicly in front of a large audience. And some of the best ideas both in sabermetrics and science are being done by 
first, second, third, fourth year graduate students or postdocs who aren't afforded those opportunities at a national meeting, you know, because they haven't published 730,000 papers or whatever. Um, they don't have a $4 million grant. But often that's sort of like a great breeding place for new ideas. And I think Saber Seminar is no different. I think uh, opening up our conference program to that group of individuals has has been one of the best decisions we've made. I'm looking at some of the topics, intentional walks with intent, the effects of weather, uh, an examination of extra innings, the use of the C-flap helmet. There really is something for everybody uh, at this. And it, you don't just have to be into analytics necessarily to really be uh, into it. I was thinking back to a presenter that you have regularly, Chris Geary, uh, kind of does a, a medical-related uh, presentation that's always very interesting and always very lively. Can you tell us about some of the non-analytic things that people can expect? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of this stuff at Sabre Seminar, so sure, there's, you know, your, um, you know, uh, your presentation on DRA or, you know, mathematical models that relate to, like, the game of baseball or decision-making about baseball or player valuation. But I think there's a huge number of other presentations. In fact, I would wager more often than not, our presentations are sort of about baseball adjacent things. You might have presentations about biomechanics and health. Um, you might have presentations about sports injuries, like Chris Erie's presentation. We have, uh, you know, four or five presentations this year on physics and the home run surge. And like, on the one hand, yes, those things are obviously about baseball. On the other hand, you know, we're not measuring on field outcomes, you know, the number of walks a particular player gets or how many times they ground into a double play or something. Um, but instead, you know, Lloyd and Meredith and Allen and, and Bart are, are measuring physical properties of the ball or the bat or the ball bat collision. And, um, you know, so <laughs> we have this, this large number of, of, of baseball adjacent research presentations that I think, you know, can speak to a pretty wide audience, a, a, a pretty large group of people. You mentioned uh, the women uh, that are, the, the involvement of women and minorities. There's a, a women in baseball panel on the second day, right? Yes, there is. And um, also, Gene uh, Afterman and uh, Raquel Ferreira are also speaking on the first day. Um, Jean has uh, has has been in in uh, at Saber Seminar before. I think a couple of years ago, um, she gave a presentation with Tyler called uh, "Gosh, I'm going to mess up the title," but it was something like "Changing Gender Metrics in Baseball Front Offices." So yeah, I mean, I think that's you know that's one of the themes of the conference this year. We also have several other uh, uh, presentations that focus on women's baseball, including one by um, uh, this is a student presentation, um, but she's also, I think, a member of the Australian national team and is going to be talking about data from the um, Women's World Cup, uh, which some colleagues of mine at Baseball Prospectus just released a trove of data on um, about pitch tracking and things from that event. Every penny earned during this baseball weekend goes directly to the Angioma Alliance. Uh, tell us about the charitable component. So Sabre Seminar has been uh, principally a charity for um, its entire run. Every ticket sold is a donation to charity. And we also raise a bunch of money ahead of the conference um, from conference sponsors 
like Sports Info Solutions, like a variety of, of baseball teams that help us run the event and also help fundraise for things like scholarships. Over the nine years that Sabre Seminar is going, it's raised well over $200,000, which, you know, on the one hand is an incredible amount of money. On the other hand is, you know, a drop in the bucket when it comes to medical research. Sabre Seminar has always chosen to be primarily uh, focused on a biomedical research charity. So for the first several years, we funded the Jimmy Fund, or well, we donated to the Jimmy Fund. The Jimmy Fund is a massive, massive uh, charitable organization. Um, and the uh, for, for the last couple of years, we have uh, uh, sent money towards the Andrioma Alliance. Dan Brooks of Sabermetrics Scouting and the Science of Baseball, August 10th and 11th. If you're there, a few things. Be sure to say hello to uh, any number of people. Dan uh, certainly included uh, Andrew Kine, who's giving a presentation from Sports Info Solutions. Uh, and also check out the swag that they offer. They have a great T-shirt uh, among them, among the many T-shirts that they, uh, the number of T-shirts that they offer, the uh, Sabermetric Periodic Table. Uh, it is a, a cool shirt to wear. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, sure. Uh, hope to see you at the event this year. And um, if not, good luck. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. You're out. And it's time for our segment called Instant Replay. That's where we look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. We share stats, interesting things we've found. Andrew Kine from R&D joins me now. And we'll start with something that I wrote about balls hit up the middle. We were just curious of a very simple thing. When you hit a ball past the pitcher and it goes at least 70 feet, say, uh, how often does the batter reach base? And we were looking at it from the perspective of the pre-shift time and now in what we would call the, the heavy shifting era. And it was amazing the, the difference. It was about a 20 percentage point uh, difference uh, in success. It used to be a 70% kind of play. Hey, if you hit the ball at the middle, that's a, a hit. Now it's like a 50-50 proposition. It's not the same. And it impacts a guy like uh, Alex Bregman was the example that we came up with for this season. Two for 12 on balls up the middle. Used to be uh, a couple of years ago, he was like a six, seven, eight hundred hitter on those. He'd have six, seven, eight more hits. And he'd be hitting about what he hit last year and the year before that. But now those are outs. And it's amazing how you have to reset as a fan when you're watching. It goes back to something that we talked about a few episodes ago when we talked about uh, some of the research I did related to how well teams position their infields. And we were talking about how we as baseball watchers have had to recalibrate uh, sort of what we expect when we see a ball put into play and it's up the middle and there's a defender in a spot where, you know, 10 years ago he wouldn't have been standing. Um, so I think this data that you pulled really illustrates that, and I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it was a fun, uh, fun thing to look at. The article is available. You can find it at sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. And we're going to go back to something that Andrew wrote as we, we segue here. Mike Farron had asked us a question a couple of uh, episodes ago. 
We talked about hitters counts and who was good at both getting into them and then performing once they did get into them. Andrew wrote about this. What did you find? So I looked at uh, hitters who've reached 2-0 counts or 3-1 counts in the highest percentage of their plate appearances. And updating the numbers since the blog uh, was posted, the current leaders are Justin Smoke, who uh, gets into favorable counts about 30% of his plate appearances, Mike Trout, obviously, Alex Bregman, uh, Daniel Vogelback, Reese Hoskins, Cody Bellinger, Carlos Santana. So an interesting mix of guys who I think pitchers are probably trying to avoid the middle of the zone, uh, but they also pair that with having really good plate discipline. So Bregman, for example, has the lowest chase rate in the game right now. Santana and Trout aren't far behind. Hoskins smoke also uh, in that top 15 or so. And then the other component of that, which you mentioned, was actually doing damage. Uh, So I looked at the weighted on-base average, or WOBA, in those plate appearances uh, where the hitters reached a favorable count. And Trout has far and away been the best at this, his WOBA, in those situations north of 600. Bregman also really good. Uh, Mookie Betts, Juan Soto, Reese Hoskins, all good as well. Um, yeah, right. So, uh, the league average in, in these plate appearances is about 450. Uh, so one notable one that I saw was Bryce Harper, who, when he gets into favorable counts, he does get into a lot of them. He's like in the top 20, uh, in terms of getting into favorable counts, but he only has a 387 Woba. Uh, so compared to a league average of 450 and the top guys having 550 or above, uh, that's an area where he's potentially underperforming a bit. And obviously he's been in the spotlight. Uh, a lot this year. That's amazing that you have Trout at one end of the spectrum and you have Harper at the other. All right, I want to segue. We had a very good week when it came to listener uh, email. So we will uh, touch on that. And I'm going to reply to a, a couple of them. Andrew is as well. Uh, Jeff Pirashad asks, do you think Mike Mussina and Roy Halladay's stats lowered the statistical bar for Hall of Fame starters? And if so, by how much? So I think if you look at things analytically, they didn't really lower the bar. The bar just got changed. Uh, Mike Messina is an 85 war pitcher. That in the designated hitter era makes him in the top five for pitchers in that time period. And that's with Pedro and Greg Maddox and Randy Johnson and the elite pitchers, and Roger Clemens. Um, Messina had sustained excellence for an extended period of time. And I think that's referenced on his Hall of Fame plaque. And I think you just have to look at it as a changing game. Like you wouldn't compare Mike Mussina to Juan Marichal and Bob Gibson. You have to compare Mike Mussina to his contemporaries. And the bar changes. You don't have the same expectations for Mussina that you had back then. And Mussina even talked about this uh, in his conference call. With Roy Halladay, he's in the high 50s, low 60s for complete games. Nobody's doing that. That was what made Roy Halladay distinct. Uh, That was what made him a great pitcher and a dominant pitcher in his era. Uh, And I just think that the bar changes. It changes for Lee Smith. Lee Smith had 10 30-save seasons. Kimbrell might get there. Kenley Jansen, maybe. But relief pitchers are so volatile these days that for Lee Smith to last as long as he did and be very, very good, that's impressive. I don't know necessarily that I'd put him at the top of the Hall of Fame bar, but he's close. I think he's closer. You need time to kind of figure out where people rank in context. Uh, So I do want to 
acknowledge uh, that. Thanks for the question, Jeff. Michael Lynch of sportsreference.com asks us, what was the most impactful trade de- deadline acquisition of all time that can in- include immediate impact, postseason success, and even long-term success? I'm going to touch on one uh, just because I know Mike Lynch. I know Mike Lynch will like that I say this one. I'm going to say Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez was traded for June 15th, 1983 in a deal between the Cardinals and Mets. Trade deadline was June 15th back then. And Keith Hernandez was an integral part of the Mets winning the 1986 World Series. And speaking of Hall of Fame, I'm in the minority on this, but I'm very pro when it comes to Keith Hernandez and the Baseball Hall of Fame for his combination of clutch hitting, defensive excellence, and all the little things that he did, including some of the things that uh, Kirk Gibson talked about uh, in his uh, interview. Looking at some of the other questions that we got, I'm going to do a quick one, and Andrew can chime in on this if he wants to. Michael Lehman asked like a series of five questions in a tweet, bringing up to one. How does war compare to the actual number of wins a team records? I've done this. I've looked at this. It's been a few years, but I would say that for the majority of teams, it's like if you take the number and you add, what is it, 47, 48, 49, it gets you really close. It may not be perfect. There are going to be a couple of teams where it's going to be off, but for at least 20, 21, 22 of the teams, you're going to get a number that's really close if you add 47. The way I always used to look at it uh, when I was writing about it was the idea that if you're a team, you need to get to 40 war to be a playoff contender, to be kind of a surefire playoff contender. And um, I, I just think that, that's the way to uh, look at wins above replacement. All right, Andrew's going to chime in on this one. Doug Glanville, our good friend, writer for The Athletic, former major leaguer. This is kind of cool that we get an analyst uh, asking us a question. If you could pick three metrics to show on a screen when a batter comes to the plate, which three would you choose and why? Excellent question. And I think, I guess, I would be most interested in – essentially what is going to not necessarily predict the outcome of the at-bat, but what I can expect uh, from that upcoming interaction between the batter and the pitcher. Uh, So I think I'd probably be satisfied with walk percentage, strikeout percentage, and then something like weighted runs created plus or WOBA to essentially get that all-encompassing batter statistic. Uh, But I think with, with walk rate and strikeout rate, you would get, you know, a good feel for, um, you know, whether or not the hitter is going to work the count, whether or not he's a free swinger, things like that. And then just having something like WRC plus or WOPA would be able to kind of put um, all of the batter's contributions into, uh, uh, you know, a scale for, for the viewer. So that's kind of what I would look at immediately. One of the things that I like to say about a local broadcast crew is that a local broadcast crew earns the trust of its audience. The guys that are there for very long periods of time Uh, their viewers trust them and they're going to stick with them. And it's a great opportunity to teach, okay, why is WRC plus important? Why is, why are we including defensive runs saved in our fielder statistic? Why are we talking about FIP for pitchers? And it's something that I would challenge any broadcast crew to do is to say, hey, how can we teach the newer aspects of the game to people? How can we get to the point where we're comfortable enough with that where we can teach. I've seen, we've seen a number of broadcast crews do that. I think I cited Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser on the Dodgers broadcast talking about WRC+. Doug does it with Len Casper and uh, the folks that work on the Cubs broadcast. Uh, it's, 
it's an opportunity for broadcasters to really make a significant impact, and I hope uh, that they will. All right, last question. John Sadak, broadcaster for Westwood One Football, Westwood One NCAA Basketball, filled in on the Mets recently, wants to know what numbers are lacking that team executives want and think would have high value. And I think that goes back to what Kirk Gibson talked about in his interview and also about what Ben Lindbergh talked about uh, in his interview, the idea of practice plus, uh, how is a guy able to repeat what he's taught? Uh, can we, uh, is he teachable? Is he someone who's going to be able to understand? And Kirk Gibson was talking about the effect of, of the longer part of the season and we get into this part of the year and still being able to perform and still listening and still learning and still being able to do little things. I think I would lean in that direction. Yeah, I completely agree. And something that I go back to from time to time is something that Keith Warner wrote on Baseball Prospectus back in 2004 uh, called Baseball's Hilbert Problems, 23 Burning Questions. And uh, I think, you know, looking through the list of even 15 years ago, what we were trying to solve and what we we're trying to quantify, um, I think we've made a lot of really good progress, especially with the increasing technology and the increasing amount of data that we have. Um, but one area that always sticks out is the developmental uh, aspect and the same things that you're mentioning about coachability and teachability, um, quantifying good coaching, determining optimal uh, development strategies, I think are like super important in uh, baseball right now. It's something that we're still trying to tackle. And I think a lot of them are maybe not necessarily, you know, quantifiable in the, in the sense of, you know, putting a radar, putting a specific number on a guy uh, is it's not necessarily as easy as that, but I think it's something that's super important. Um, I think another kind of interesting thing is injury analytics and being able to maybe not even uh, predict injuries, but prevent them. And it's something that in the last couple of years, I think has gotten more and more um, publicity, but it's something that's super hard to actually determine and, and tease out what is causing certain effects and, and things of that nature, but it's super important. You should do a study. I could do that. It's, we, do, we do have a very extensive injury database here that, that we've been trying to uh, make sense of, but uh, they are difficult problems, but super valuable. All right, last part of the show. Uh, oh, we got two things to do, actually. One, we wanted to pick a player to watch the rest of the season because we're going to go th – the next episode is going to be after the trade deadline. We wanted to pick a guy. Last two months, uh, highest significant impact, uh, and I am going to go you Darvish. Uh, last two starts, fantastic. Six plus innings, six innings in each, no runs in each. By the time you listen to this, he may have made his third start. Hopefully, don't hold it against me if I'm wrong on, on this one. But the cutter was good. He felt confident. He's someone that could uh, certainly be a highly impactful player down the stretch, especially in the NL Central, where it's so bunched together and so close. He could be the big difference maker. I'll say Jose Ramirez with the Indians. Uh, very slow first half, but if you look at our expected numbers for him, uh, his batting, his expected batting average is about 30 points better than his actual batting average. His expected OPS is about 100 points better than his actual OPS. Uh, and in July, he's already hitting 328 with a 985 OPS. Uh, so he's getting better. And the Indians, as you mentioned in your opening monologue, uh, are suddenly right behind the Twins in the Central and in the thick of the wild card race as well. So I think they're a team to watch, and I think Ramirez will be very important for them down the stretch. Let's get to the fun part. Let's get to the ridiculous number. Ridiculous numbers of the day. Uh, Andrew will start with his ridiculous number of the day. So I saw last night that Garrett Cole became the second fastest player 
to reach or second fastest pitcher to reach 200 strikeouts in a season with the fastest being Randy Johnson in 2001. So I looked at the current uh, K percentage leaderboard all time for single season and Cole is currently striking out 37.9% of batters, which is as of now the highest K rate uh, among qualified starters ever, just barely ahead of uh, Randy Johnson's 2001 with 37.4 and Pedro Martinez's 1999 season when he was at 37.5. So that's also something to watch down the stretch. Garrett Cole, a lot of strikeouts, very ridiculous. I'm going to tell you that Pedro's season's more ridiculous because he did it in an era where hitters were dominating the game. All right, mine comes in the form of a trivia question. I'm going to ask it to Andrew Kine. We've been tracking hard hit rate for about 15 years here, and I lowered the minimum to 200 at-bats against in a season. And I want to know which pitcher, this is kind of similar to the Cole thing, which pitcher has the lowest hard hit rate for a season? It was done in 2011. That's your hint. What do you got? So I'm guessing that this might have some relevance towards recent events. I'm guessing Hall of Fame. I will guess Roy Halladay. The correct answer. 9.5%, 9.5%, something like 21 hard-hit balls, and I think it was 220-ish at-bats against him. Mariano Rivera, the only unanimous Hall of Famer. And with that, we wrap up this episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For our guests, Kirk Gibson and Dan Brooks, our producer, Justin Stein, and my colleague, Andrew Kine, this is Mark Simon. See you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.